Good morning everybody, this is Sir Buckley and I am speaking to you from not only the Isle of Faces but a very windy and cold England of course. Hello, good morning and how are you? So today we are through to part 10 of Clash of Kings. We are very very close to the end and you might have realised this could be coming to you slightly earlier than normal thanks to my final completion of, of the Great Castles of Westeros book that I finally released last week and a great many thank yous of course to everyone who shared and, and purchased and read that it's been a very exciting week now that's out of the way the schedule for Isle of Faces can change slightly and I can get to doing these podcasts a bit early in the week so for patrons hello uh, this should be with you on a Monday perhaps if I'm quick enough and for the general public hello this probably will be with you on a tuesday and we'll we'll see how that works going forward hopefully uh, we can keep to that kind of schedule especially as we finish up clash and seemingly move into storm just a bit quicker of a turnaround allows you guys a little more space to be able to listen to both this and the main stream from aziz and the share on sundays that yesterday they're actually in the radio westros house i'm sure you were tuned in for that and uh, yeah, it just allows a bit more time and hopefully a bit more interaction too. Before I get to that, speaking of interaction, apologies last week when I uploaded not <laughs> a Clash of Kings Part 9, but a Game of Thrones Part 9, or possibly a different part of Game of Thrones. But thank you to Kayla Ha and Don Cat Superhero for letting me know about that on Twitter. I probably would have left it up there a week if you guys hadn't let me know. And it's always just fun to interact with you, so... Yes, thank you to all, and I encourage everyone to get in touch with any thoughts about the show or anything that I've missed or anything like that, basically. You can always find me at Sir Buckley, S-E-R Buckley, on Twitter, or we have an email for the podcast, which is idlefacespodcast at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you soon. But that out of the way, let's get to today's chapters in question. We have another six leading up as always, to the Battle of the Blackwater. So we start today with Sansa Four, the one with another meeting with Sir Dontos, another meeting with Sandrock again, and Sansa's first flowering. Then we move to John Seven. John has his wolf dream, his very first wolf dream, and the eagle appears in the sky. Tyrion Twelve, yes, Twelve, somehow. Uh, this is the one with a brief break from the Blackwater and where Cersei kidnaps the wrong woman. Then we are to Catelyn Seven. Yay, Catelyn Chapters. Oh uh, no, the last Catelyn chapter, yes. We've reached the end of my favourite character arc. But I will continue just for you. And this is the one where Catelyn goes to see Jamie Lannister. On to Theon 5, where Asher comes to Winterfell. And finally, we finish as we began, back to Sansa. It's Sansa 5, and the Battle of the Blackwater begins. And I'm happy to tell you that because I haven't had to be working on the Castles book last week, I had a little bit more time to get to notes and was able to put a bit more down for Aziz and share. Having said that, Aziz is so so hard working that he's actually got to more of my notes than usual. So I've probably ended up with the same amount for you either way. But let's get to it. Let's begin with Sansa 4. So this is pre-battle. Things are starting to click into uh, into place and you know, people have appeared and it's all starting basically and as he's mentioned that we're getting Sansa as a, a a viewpoint a camera in the same way that we get Catelyn Sansa's viewpoint is actually enhanced from Catelyn's previous uh, viewpoints in fact for Catelyn those battles it was very easy to see which side she needed to win she needed Rob to win that was obviously what Catelyn was hoping for things are a bit different for Sansa because neither outcome really seems to bring anything but danger if Joffrey wins and the Lannisters win 
she's still a prisoner, she's still going to have to marry Joffrey as far as she knows. Her abuse is just going to continue. So obviously she would want that to end, no? But then again, if Stannis wins, there's the possibility she is just trading one captor for another. She might even be hurt or killed in the in the sack and considering what she's just experienced with the mob she obviously fears that very much so it's not nearly as clear-cut as when Catelyn was camera so it's a different experience for us as the reader as well it's important to get Sansa's viewpoint across as well she lends more thought to the small folk than Tyrion or Davos do obviously they're a bit more busy fighting for their lives during the battle so they haven't really got as much time to be thinking about small folk later on in this chapter uh, Sansa directly refers to the last time the city was sacked and knows that more of the same is coming from them basically no matter what banners are out there on the horizon doesn't really matter that it's Stannis it could be anyone doesn't really matter if it was Daenerys coming or if the north was coming the sacking is still what actually affects people and Sansa's smart enough to realize that battle is nearly upon us so the war of the riverlands is really brought to the capital even though it's actually coming from the opposite direction from the stormlands and the stannis but by both sides setting fire uh, setting fires out in the wood in the kingswood burning food and trying to smoke each other out this has already been happening for months in the riverlands thanks to good old tywin but now king's landing is no longer exempt from the ways of war it's already had to suffer through one a facet of war from the starvation and the lack of food now it's actually got the violence and the fires coming as well so there's just really no escape from what was once just a problem far away didn't need to worry about it but no longer while we're speaking about the sacking and the potential for violence you could actually make a, a connection between and this is unfortunate but it puts me in mind of a connection between Sansa basically being the Elia Martell of this sacking if the city were to fall no, Sansa isn't the mother, true, but she is a princess in a tower. She ends up in her in her tower room, as we know in chapters to come. But she's basically just going to be hidden up there, pray, praying that the right men, the right invading men, find her first and not the more brutal, which essentially was what Elia would have been doing, surely. She would have been hoping someone, like a Ned would have found her, not a Gregor again. So how many parallels could we draw from a, a sickening image of Someone like a Clayton Suggs or some other ambitious Stormlord presenting new King Stannis, the body of Sansa in the throne room. You could really picture that and just see how, how many close reflections there are of Tywin presenting Aegon and Rhaenys to new King Robert. Luckily, we know that's not what happens, but you can see beforehand how that, um, how that matches up quite well. So we've spoken before about Tyrion being behind the game in terms of trying to persuade the small folk that Stannis is bad and he's bad for them via his siding with a new religion but finally Tyrion's kind of caught up now and especially Stannis has actually helped him out because he's burnt the godswood of Storm's End which is a pretty major move if we're honest I'm actually surprised it's not brought up more both by characters and by us that could be a reason for Stannis's failure on the Black War he angered the old gods and that's why he failed I'm just surprised that that doesn't get brought up more, especially later on in Stannis's arc. I assume the news of that burning of Storm's End, Godswood, never really reaches the North or has just kind of faded into the background, because surely those Northern lords would definitely bulk at siding with him. I think I'm right in saying Davos quickly mentions in his chapter he really hopes no one brings up the Godswood burning in front of Wyman Manderley, because that would obviously not go down well with Northerners, not at all. Apparently Stannis gets away with that one. But for now, obviously the larger effect is that the Kingslanders are finally all in and like, no, we don't want this guy to come. He's burning Godswoods, we don't like him. He's bringing the Red God. And consider that the Godswood actually isn't all that much to the people of King's Landing. They're mostly worshippers of the Faith of the Seven. 
but it's probably quite easy for Tyrion to say, hey, if he's going to burn a godswood, he's probably going to burn down your nice sept as well. I like to think that Sansa internalises the burning of a godswood as a bad thing, especially seeing as she has actually stood in one when she hears about it from Sir Dantos. And that's just adding another layer, adding another foundation for her eventual return to her northness, which we've already discussed in previous chapters. To finish off this chapter, Sansa has a memory of the King's Landing riot where she's nearly taken and devoured by the mob, but Sandor again steps in and she has this in her memory. The man with the garlicky breath was on the ground, blood pumping out of the stump of his arm, but there was others all around him, some with clubs in hand. The hound leapt at them, his sword a blur of steel that trailed a red mist as it swung. Now not only is that a hell of a line, blur of steel that trailed a red mist, I like that. But it's a really great choice by George to include Sansa, remembering the most chivalrous, knightly thing that Sandor has ever done, given his constant place as an opposition to knightly ideals throughout this book, which we've discussed time and time again, the two sides of the coin between him and Dontos, and why Sandor doesn't embrace those sides of knighthood. Um, we could go on about that, and Aziz did a very good job of that, so I don't need to repeat. But finally, we actually have the Hound paying up and delivering what he's been hinting at, that he is actually, or he does have some part of him that is good and knightly, even if he doesn't want to admit it. Okay, so we'll come back to Sansa later on, but now we're going on to John 7. We're up in the Frostfangs again. We're deep, deep in the Frostfangs with Corrin Halfhand and the gang, and things things accelerate very much so. John's whole clash arc goes very quickly once he meets Corrin, so it's, it's always difficult to remember how few chapters they actually get together. Already, they are turning back and trying to make a run for it because John has his dream in this chapter and they get spotted by the eagle and they're abandoning their mission. If you'd asked me before, I probably would have said this whole Corrin thing takes three or four chapters, but no, it's very, very quick. Now, we spoke in the last John chapter about John having a significant connection to Bran and how John, on average, has the most connections to the Stark siblings. Here we get... John and Bran interacting on the spiritual plane, which I'm pretty sure no other siblings do, if I remember correctly, or definitely not in this kind of solid link way. And it just further shores up that connection between the two. Rob and I get a lot of the John talk, and that's fair, because he has such an emotional connection to them. But Bran deserves to be included too, and I think this chapter really hits us in the head with that. Again, even just looking through now, Aziz gets to most of my notes, so less work for me to do here, so thank you Aziz. But let me move on to the next note here. Does John suddenly experience this burst into, into skin changing and wolf dreams and all that kind of side of the magical realm that, of direwolves, etc.? Is that because he's so far north? Indeed, this is the furthest north he will ever go, I think, or so far, anyway. Who knows what will come in Winds of Winter? But is that why John's abilities are a li that little bit more powerful now? Because he's closer to whatever lies at the heart of winter. On that subject, it seems weird to me that ghosts can now apparently sense summer despite the wall being between them because we get some pretty contradictory information later on about what kind of barrier the wall is to the wolves and how they interact and how they can sense each other. So does that only go one way? Does it, I don't know, is that just something George changes later on? Who could say? Let me read you this quote here and I know Aziz got to this as well but I'm going to read it to you anyway. Don't be afraid. I like it in the dark. No one can see you but you can see them. But first you have to open your eyes. See? Like this. And the tree reached down and touched him. So as he's got to my main notes about that, but I also want to just point out that there's a lot of track claim that goes beyond the immediate of seeing where of John seeing where Mance's army is. That's one effect, but it's not the only. Is it possible that without this brand intervention and this supposed 
eye-opening type thingy. The, without this, John wouldn't be able to assume the warg into Ghost when he's murdered. That's what most people have put down as what's happening. John gets murdered at the end of Dance of Dragons and he wargs into Ghost. Would he have that ability without Bran's little intervention, this little opening of the eye here? Probably we will never find out, but it's interesting to think of. And again, I'm already through this chapter very quickly. Thank you, Aziz, for using so many of my notes. I finish with a quote here. It's probably my favourite quote, if I'm honest with you. And see my Garen has an apple when you're home. He's earned it, poor beastie. Now, if you can think of a line that catapults someone into legendary status more quickly than this, I'd like to hear it. Squire Delbridge's sacrifice ends up in vain, but we should not appreciate it any less for that. Or that Corrin's unit is so well run that the possibility comes up in the first place. Not everyone would just volunteer for Corrin's unit, Corrin's leadership. He's forged people that would be willing to do that. And it just makes me think that you could easily imagine a Gren or a Pip or even a Sam doing this in a similar situation for John because they love him so much and they respect his leadership as these people obviously respect and love Corrin. So that's a great chapter. There's a lot... A lot I got down for that, and I'm really glad Easter was able to use my note. Now we're on to Tyrion 12, so many Tyrions. And this is a bit of an outlier chapter today, definitely within the King's Landing kind of plot that we're following. It's a big breakaway from the prep of the Blackwater, even though we do get some mentions of what's going on. But there's definitely a different feeling to this one than the, the rush of John in the mountains or the monumental decisions made in Catelyn and Fionn later on. This feels a little less important, even though there's important stuff in it, but it's definitely a breakaway from the Blackwater, yet still an incredibly important chapter for things that will happen much later on. So most of this chapter is based around Cersei and Tyrion clashing yet again, and basically there being a big step up in the hostilities between them, especially on Cersei's part, even with the, the coming battle outside. It's actually tough to remember that a while back, one of Tyrion's major objectives in getting to King's Landing and becoming Hand of the King was finding out why he had been blamed for Bran's fall and how that tied into Cersei and Joffrey and, of course, Littlefinger too. He learned a lot about that in Game of Thrones, and right at the beginning of that this book, that was still very much in his mind. Now, he's actually had the coming invasion of Stannis to occupy his time and all his duties as Hand of the King. So that's all slipped away a bit, but it does get brought back up here, and it's, it's just funny to remember how that was once very important and like i say there are some notes on the battle here so let me read you this quote in formal battle discipline is more important than courage they've already done us more good in the kingswood than they ever would have done us on the city walls that's obviously in reference to the clansmen that cersei's asking why they've been sent away because she's not the the greatest at grasping military strategy Tyrion's a lot better and he's put them to put the clansmen to use and that's fitting that we get this fought in a chapter adjacent to john finally spying the sprawling masses of the wildlings because that just goes to show that these types of soldiers you can obviously draw a lot of, lot of comparisons between the wildlings and the clansmen these types of soldiers are more useful out in the wild because they work so well on different types of terrain and in the land the wildlings are better up in the frozen mountains the clansmen will be, be, be better on the woods than on a wall and just to take a quick aside because i like to talk about Dion in every podcast if i can even when he's not present where is John and Dior and the rest at the moment? They're in the wild. Where would the wild things be bad? At the wall. Where should John and Dior have stayed? The wall. Yes, you've got it. But uh, that's just a quick aside from me because I like to bash Dior more a bit. So talking of the war effort, Tyrion and Cersei both note that they haven't got much support from the surrounding houses of the Crownlands. To be fair, it's thin pickings in that region anyway, but to not have any men sent from Stokeworth or Antlers or wherever, that's a pretty 
big breach of feudal contract if we were going to look at it that way. Twice over, in fact, because you're not just disobeying your liege lord as, you know, if the Marbrands didn't send any men for the Lannisters. That's one thing. That's your liege lord. But this is the king you're, you're disobeying as well. So is this because they believe King's Landing to be doomed? Do they still hold on to the memories of the Targaryens, perhaps? And they're thinking, well, maybe the Lannisters go down. It serves them right, even though they'd only be being replaced by Stannis anyway. Or they're just not big fans of Cersei and Tyrion. Very possible. We can definitely uh, appreciate that that might be the fact. Let me read you another quote here. And this is Tyrion in response to Cersei suggesting that Tyrion might be after Tommen and Joffrey. Gods be good, Cersei. They're my own blood. Now, that's not going to matter to him so much by the end of the storm, knowing as we do what he ha what happens between him and Tywin. This chapter is really great for comparing pre and post Blackwater Tyrion. Here he still has the ideals of never actually harming his kin, of protecting Shay, or putting the battle and the good of the city above his quarrels of Cersei. After the battle, and after the wedding specifically, which also links very heavily to this chapter, he is so very changed I think we can easily list Tyrion as a broken man of the Blackwater. Especially given that Cersei basically admits to wanting to kill him in the past, which comes at a crucial time considering Sir Mandon Moore's attempt on his life during the coming Blackwater. We have to remember the utter carnage that Tyrion suffers in the battle, he will suffer in the battle in a few chapters time. Even if everything was going swell back in the castle, which it obviously isn't, all that chaos and death could have unhinged him regardless. Combine that with when at the end of all that horror, someone on your own side tries to kill you. I really don't think we give enough credit to the battle itself sending Tyrion down his dark path, as well as all this family stuff that comes in Storm. And we see this reversal where he is suddenly willing to harm Kim, where he physically hurts and murders Shay, and where he is more than willing to put quarrels with Cersei above anything else. Okay, let's finish off. Tyrion 12. I think it likely that even without this chapter Cersei still accuses and imprisons Tyrion after Joffrey's murder because the optics is too heavily weighed in that direction regardless at the actual time. But Tyrion's joy will turn to Ash's speech really puts it over the edge here. Moving on to Catelyn 7. Uh, it's the end. The end of Catelyn. For now anyway. Which makes me sad. I can't really believe that this is the first final chapter of the book and it does come earlier than the rest so we get a bit of a gap. I would have never placed it that early if you'd asked me prior to rereading. And again, if there's a way to finish off an arc with a bang, then this is it. This is the act that so many focus on alongside T uh, Catelyn's capture of Tyrion back in Game of Thrones. So let's kick this chapter off with a quote. Ned always said that the man who passes the sentence should swing the blade, though he never took any joy in the duty. But I would. Oh yes. So we can see that this is Lady Stoneheart not being born of Catelyn's death. That it's quite clear she was there all along. Obviously this is coming after Catelyn has received the news of Bran and Rickon. And has really catapulted herself down into the depressive stage and the dark stages of her. Her realising what she's lost. But we can't just say that it was death specifically that brought Lady Stoneheart to life because I think we can see Catelyn herself is ready for that type of revenge. And I would say the news of Bran and Rickon inevitably brings on the flood that Catelyn has been holding at bay since word came of Ned's death. The dark swells over her now with seemingly no end in sight. Throughout this chapter she's mired in depression, woe and guilt. Let us not forget back at Moat Caelan she fairly chose to go south with Rob instead of going back to Winterfell. And I know Aziz got on to uh, my other notes on that particular 
decision. But we must also recall that Catelyn's biggest reason for not wanting to leave Winterfell originally was that she didn't want to leave Comatose Bran in case he fall into danger again or even die. But she did leave, Bran did fall into danger, and we can see how heavily she places the blame on herself now for that decision with Rob and McCaelin. Seeing as we know that Jamie's own POV is going to begin very shortly, narratively speaking anyway, it's not very long before the beginning of Storm of Swords, we can see why he needs such a focus and a lot of dialogue given to him in this chapter. After all, it's been nearly a book, a book and a half, since we've really heard from him, and even then he wasn't exactly splashed across the page. We saw him a little bit at Winterfell, we saw him very briefly in King's Landing here and there, but then he was off, off to the Westerlands and we didn't really hear from him again, to be honest. So this chapter is critical for reintroducing what will be a top-tier character going forward, and also for establishing him as a person with his own views, rather than the second-hand info we've been getting from Ned and Cersei and Tyrion, etc. so far. To me, this is almost... This chapter is almost a prologue to the Jamie plot of Storm of Swords. And especially since the last we got of him, back when he faced off against Ned in the streets of King's Landing, he was still being painted as the Disney villain jackass who was sweeping his hair aside in the rain and smiling that white smile. George was maybe, George was maybe back then still intending for Jamie to be the overall antagonist for the series, more of a Cersei-type figure, uh, based on that original plot that we've had a look at so many times. But much has changed in George's plotting from that point of Game of Thrones to this point in Clash of Kings, so he needs this new view to take place before the POV comes in Storm. Not that there isn't still plenty of jackassery in this chapter too, of course. Let's get to the one of the more famous quotes, not just of this chapter, not just of this book, but the whole series. There are no men like me, there's only me. There's so many fun ways to take that statement. Is he talking about his ability of the sword? Is he just thinking that he's completely unmatched? Is it the fact that he doesn't fear death because he believes it's not coming for him because he's so good with that sword? Or is it that he believes no one else would give so much for forbidden love as he has, just place himself on a pedestal because of so much he's done for Cersei throughout the years? That might be the fairest one, to be fair. The talk in this chapter inevitably turns to one of Jamie's biggest acts. We've spoken so much through this book about the responsibility of kings, and especially of knights, particularly in Arya and Sansa chapters, but now we're looking right back at the our first... Uh, interaction with such a choice Jamie attempting to murder Bran right back at the beginning of Game of Thrones really the inciting incident of Game of Thrones and though Jamie all spells it out for Catelyn we get another repeat of someone learning the truth about Littlefinger and proceeding to do absolutely nothing about it as we did with Tyrion before again maybe Lady Stoneheart holds our hopes here so Jamie not only talks about the push of Bran and that original attempted murder but also the knife and the cat's paw and all that type of stuff we're really fitting it all into this chapter is a lot to uh, consider to finish this chapter let me speak briefly on like the controversy around this decision to let jamie go though she can't be blamed for wanting to get her children back uh, or acting emotionally after news of bran and rickon has already come and, and really whacked her for 10 there were also other ways if if catelyn still had the energy to find them and even then they're not guaranteed to exchange jamie for sansa and i supposedly that might have worked out in the long run Certainly they might have been a better choice than this, but given all of Catelyn's preconceived notions of what should be and what is normal in the world of Westeros have been ripped away from her, in her mind, why not swing for the fences? I really don't think we can blame her for making this choice because why should she believe that there is any other choice at the end of the day? So we say farewell to Catelyn, I shed a few tears, and let us move on to the next chapter. But not without me just quickly getting in that I really do love 
Catelyn's clash arm. As you might remember me saying right back at the beginning of Clash of Kings. If you don't, go back and listen because uh, I do wax on about it for a little bit. So here we come to Fionn 5. And though you can make this argument for any Fionn chapter, this particular one is really the beginning of the end for him. Even he can no longer argue that there is a way to turn his current generation around. A fact that Asha hammers home when she comes to visit. And we finally move on to the, the final phase of Clash of Kings Fionn. The morose knows his fate, moody Fionn, who is finally forced to look at his true place in the world just before everything truly tumbles around him. We can't really call it the, the end yet because things are about to get way worse, but this is when even he starts to accept he's made a wrong turn. Uh, even though we've known that from the beginning, now everything is really catching up. Last week we had a lot of dream dream talk about Daenerys and House of the Undying. Fionn's not normally someone we have to associate with dreams and uh, the supernatural too much but here he actually has three in a row and as he's got to my notes on the third one but before we get to that Fionn's first dream of being chased by direwolves with children's faces is an excellent mirror to his previous chapter Fionn 4 where he goes hunting in the wolfswood which is actually quite recent in terms of Fionn chapters in this book I think we can group Fionn and Davos chapters as the kind of outliers they're the newbies I think they're quite far apart normally but Fionn much like Daenerys at the end of Game of Thrones does accelerate a bit towards the end of the book here. So obviously in that chapter, he's chasing direwolves and children. Now he's being chased in his dream. And that links between the first and second dreams in that Fionn is begging for what he has denied several now deceased people around him. And that guilt is seeping through. So in that first dream where he's being chased by the wolves, here's a quote. It says, Mercy, he sobbed. Mercy, he sobbed. From behind came a shuddering howl that curdled his blood. Mercy, mercy. And in, in his second dream, we have this quote, Gelmar had cut her down with one blow of his axe as she cried to Fionn for mercy. That's obviously about the Miller's wife. He's dreaming about what he's done with the two Miller's boys. And yeah, it's that, that guilt that he is wanting what he hasn't even given other people. And it's all just starting to crash around. But that's merely the beginning of the chapter. The main event is Asher Greyjoy arriving. And it's quite clear that the original interaction between Asher and Fionn, when Asher was pretending to be Edsgred, I'm sure I don't need to remind you, has really buried itself in Fionn's psyche and really affects his actions here. It makes that incredible earlier chapter, I think it's Fionn 2 off the top of my head, it makes it even more brilliant to see that its effects are lasting this long. Even with a war and ironborn invasion raging all about them, it still comes back to Fionn's acute embarrassment from uh, the the rings that Asher ran around him. So this chapter goes a long way to show that even when Fionn tries to do the Ironborn thing, by which I mean killing Bran and Rickon, supposedly, or the Winterfell small folk, he actually only alienates those he is trying to impress, as Asher blatantly displays here. She's not impressed by his apparent killing of Bran and Rickon. She's not impressed by his suppression of the small folk. Unfortunately for Fionn, it's the exact same case with the Northerners whenever he tries to act more like Eddard. They don't buy into that either, and he just ends up alienated from both sides and completely on his own. Despite Asher's more than competent advice on what Fionn should have done with Winterfell, if he actually wanted to score a victory in the war on the north, Fionn still reduces the stakes to his prize, as I think Aziz mentioned. And as we mentioned in previous Fionn chapters, it is the claiming of Winterfell, the news story and the acclaim that matters to him, and with us with Fionn obviously ignoring that raising Winterfell and stealing the sons of Eddard Stark would have been more than enough for some infamy if that's really what he wanted. 
But he doesn't pause to think on the truth of his sister's words because he genuinely isn't that interested in Balon's invasion. Once you get right down to it, he's in it for himself. And as much as he sees Asha as a rival and almost wishes she was the Cersei to his Tyrion, she simply isn't. It's a wonderful dichotomy of Asha. She so strongly vibes as Ironborn because she's taken up the proper Ironborn defensive position at Deepwood Mott. She knows how to use their proper strengths and stick by the sea, etc, etc. And yet she can't bring herself to be a Euron, a Victarion, a Balon, even a Theon. She generally does give him good advice to save his own life, which is not something we would probably associate with Ironborn very much. But then we know how special Asha is, of course. Although he finally does begin to suspect Reek's motives, it's way too little too late for Theon. And even if he never fi figured out Reek was a noble or Ramsay specifically, he should have at least been able to see he is the very baddest of eggs and that working with him is not a good idea. Uh, especially for those of us on reread, this chapter close really does send Theon down the, uh, the beginning of the end, as we discussed at the beginning. And that leaves us back to Sansa, back to the last chapter today, back to Sansa 5, and a lot, not a lot of notes for me on this one, other than that this is the true beginning of the Black War now. There were skirmishes before, yes, but now everything's beginning and we're into this little set of chapters that really takes us through the nitty-gritty of the battles. I don't have a lot of notes for this one, I've got, it's got to be said, maybe it's just because I'm so anticipating the actual warfare that uh, I'm looking forward to that next week. But... It's a nice roundup of Sansa's clash experiences that she chooses to pray for Tyrion and Sandok again uh, in the sept there with the other noble women and with Cersei, as Tyrion and Sandor have been the two light sparks in her otherwise very dark world. Being that these two are the most physically deformed of those close to Sansa, and her earlier reliance on the ideals of good looking, equaling, being pure hearted, is a great sign of those lessons recently learnt that we've been discussing throughout this book and that lesson and uh, let's back that up with a little quote he is no true knight but he saved me all the same she told the mother save him if you can and gentle the rage inside him that's her praying for sandok again there and so far as we know sansa's prayers are eventually answered in a feast for crows he is saved in the battle he doesn't die he's saved for, for beric dondarian etc doesn't die there and in theory the rage inside him is gentled by the elder brother uh, on the in the sanctuary perhaps we shall see i think it's also superb to see that before she prays for Tyrion and sandok again sansa puts her fellow northerners at the front of her prayers list not only just her family but jane Poole and jory and all the other northerners that came down to king's landing with them and unfortunately met their end just to top that off she actively hopes for joffrey's death however cowed sansa might seem on the outside there's simply no stilling the wolf inside her as we see here which relates again to the we were discussing earlier, the layers and foundations of Northness that are still there in her character. Final thought for today. Flag this as another chapter it would have been superb to have Cersei's POV for, especially given that she has fall she has completely fallen from the position she gave everything to gain at the end of Game of Thrones. Back then she essentially took the Iron Throne for herself, organised a coup, overthrew a king, in her mind at least. Now all of that has been whittled away by her hated brother and she is forced to act like a powerless woman again, something we know greatly annoys her from her, her later chapters where we do have her POV, her being relegated to lesser power merely because of her gender. It flags up to me that if Robert Raffian was still alive for the Black War, Cersei would probably be in the exact same position she is now, just kind of pushed to the side, made to look after the women and not really have any effect on anything else. 
So that would be a bit annoying. And I think, to be honest, Aziz got to everything else there for that chapter. So I'm just going to leave it there and wrap it up. Leave it for you so you can all eagerly await the coming, the Battle of the Blackwater. That's right. Six chapters next time. It's Davos 3. It's Tyrion 13. It's Sansa 6. It's Tyrion 14. And Sansa 7 to take us all the way through that battle with Daenerys 5 to give us a break from the uh, the slaughter. Obviously a huge momentous event in all of the Song of Ice and Fire, not just this book. So there's going to be a lot to talk about and a lot of notes, I am sure. Let me say thank you to Aziz and Shea again. It's been really nice to be able to spend a little more time on these notes and put a bit more in the document now that the Castles book is done. And even nicer to see that those notes are being used by Aziz and Shea in the main show. That's obviously a big confidence boost for me. And I still have some left to discuss with you guys. As I mentioned at the beginning, please do get in touch. It was great to uh, talk to a few fans and listeners there, even if it was about me making a, a big cock up and putting the wrong episode in the wrong place. I'll try not to do that this week. It did cross my mind, maybe I should just do that every week so I can uh, talk to some of you, but I'll refrain. Instead, just get in touch, let me know what you like, what you don't like, if I missed anything, and your views on these chapters. It would be great to hear from you. Other than that, I shall leave you here, and hopefully we'll keep going with this schedule, and we'll return next week. Make sure you bring your armour and your pot helm. See you next week, guys. <laughs>